This episode of Science Moab was partially sponsored by the Nature Conservancy, protecting Utah's lands and waters and delivering solutions that benefit nature and people on the Colorado River and the Colorado Plateau. Learn more at nature.org Utah. This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about the Sagebrush Sea, which has been called one of the largest natural systems in North America. I'm Matt Cahill. I lead what we call our Sagebrush Sea program for the Nature Conservancy, based in Bend, Oregon. And my day-to-day job is basically connecting my colleagues and their partners around the West on topics related to rangeland management, conservation, and restoration trying to get us bigger, bolder winds across, uh, you know, a really large geography. So the Sagebrush Sea has been called the largest natural, one of the largest natural systems in North America. What makes up the Sagebrush Sea? For our purposes, you know, we're about 150 million acres, plus or minus tens of millions of acres that we would call the Sagebrush Sea. And what we're meaning by that are the, the landscapes that are dominated by these shrub steppe vegetation communities, an overstory of sagebrush, Artemisia, that is just quintessential to the landscape, provides habitat for a lot of the unique animals that call the sagebrush sea their endemic home. And then with an understory under that sagebrush of pretty diverse perennial vegetation, bunch grasses, lots of wildflowers, pretty diverse set of annual wildflowers too, And then a periphery as you go up into the mountains and you get into a cooler, wetter surrounding that converts into pinyon, juniper woodlands, and eventually out of what we'd call the sagebrush sea altogether into the conifer forests of the high American mountains. And so the sagebrush sea is really like in concept, it's that vegetation community. And then geographically, it's the space between the mountains. So from California to the Dakotas, Canada to the Grand Canyon, It's kind of the valley bottoms, the broad open plateaus and basins that are in between big lofty mountain ranges and then eventually peter out and become the Great Plains as you move into eastern Montana and eastern Wyoming. And what about what animals are unique to the sagebrush sea? Well, the sage grouse is the indomitable hero, right? He's Uh, the hero, yeah. That is that's the prairie grouse that uniquely calls the sagebrush sea its home. Two species, right? There's the greater sage grouse, which is covers much of the West, and then the Gunnison sage grouse, which is highly restricted to uh, Western Colorado and a little bit of Utah these days. Okay. So that's the most charismatic, most well-known endemic species to the biome. A number that you hear a lot is there's 350 species at least that are highly dependent, if not completely dependent on the biome, that are in some category of threatened, rare, or endangered. And so, you know, other examples that people commonly quote beyond multiple plant species, insect species, lizards, and other reptiles, pygmy rabbit is a real famous one, the tiniest little lagomorph that we've got around here, away from the pica. Pronghorn, mule deer, known for their epic migration routes across the basin. Those four, pronghorn, bison, pygmy rabbits, and sage grass, I would say, are the, the charismatic quartet. I have one more question about just the sagebrush sea in general. I mean, it once stretched, say, from the Dakotas all the way to the West Coast and has been shrinking ever since man started settling in North America. 
Is there any sense of how long the sea of sagebrush had been in existence before man, say, was even around? I mean, you think it was always here? Well, a couple of fun thoughts there. I mean, much of the geography that we're talking here, the you know, the Intermountain West of the U.S. up into Canada was heavily influenced by the last glacial maximum, right? Like most of the sagebrush sea was under ice, quite literally. Right. And the portions that weren't were on the frigid tundra margins. So I think it's fair to say that what we would call the modern rangeland community sagebrush sea, you know, is a post-glacial experience. It's what's occurred in the warm last 10,000 years. And together with that, you know, it's gone through some remarkable transitions. As, as the ice sheets melted, there were numerous, enormous inland seas, literal seas, like the Salt Lake, like, yeah. like Bonneville and, and lakes of that nature. So if you were in the Sagebrush Sea, you know, six to 8,000 years ago, very different environment, tons of open salt water, and that intersects a lot with the human dimension. So, you, you know, people have been here as long as there's been a Sagebrush right. Sea. And some of the oldest archaeology sites in the western U.S., you know, take place around these Pleistocene lake basins. And it's pretty evident that, you know, people have been managing this landscape since they've been here. Indigenous people through fire, through forage, through hunting and other selection. A lot of probably what early European settlers saw in the West was far from like a wilderness. It was like in many North American ecosystems, a highly curated, highly managed landscape that they just took to be empty got a lot of threats uh, that have been diminishing the overall size of the sagebrush sea over the last couple hundred years. And among those are wildfire development, invasive species, improper grazing. Some of them explain themselves. But, you know, after, after a big wildfire, what, what is it that keeps the sagebrush from growing back? Its own proclivity, actually. <laughs> There's plenty of time when sagebrush would burn, which again, fire is a natural recurring, often human managed tool for a long time. There was plenty of time for sagebrush to produce seed and work its way back into the landscape. And so a, a natural sagebrush landscape would have been a mosaic of bunch grasses, you know, large amounts of grass and forage, and then sagebrush intermixed between each other, sculpted by fire, sculpted by water availability. The thing that's different now is we have a whole host of introduced, you know, noxious invasive annual grasses and friends. And their strategy is much more attuned to take advantage of every moment, every year, no matter what. They always produce seeds, they're annual in their life cycle, which means they can, at a moment's notice, more or less, take advantage of open, available environmental conditions. Whereas sagebrush would be like, eh, give it 20 or 40 years, we'll get back to you. Cheatgrass, Medusa head, Bentonata, they're there as soon as they can be. It's this dynamic that the life strategy of sagebrush is not well tuned to compete with the reality of a, a whole host of introduced weeds and the forces that we often use that encourage those weeds, development, fragmentation, causing and exacerbating wildfires. Those all play to the strengths of invasives and they play to the weaknesses of sagebrush. Yeah, so they're intertwined. That's, that's very that, much. That makes a lot of sense. I know you're working with local communities across the West and trying to improve sagebrush habitat. What specifically is the Nature Conservancy doing to try to combat cheatgrass? Yeah, it's really a philosophy amongst land managers of where and should 
we combat cheatgrass? Because the fact is, some places, there's no winning, right? Like yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. Snake River Plain in Idaho, the basins around Reno, Nevada, they have been converted for so long. There's so much pressure on them. The effects of climate change are going to continue to push in such a negative direction that you know, those will never be native landscapes vegetatively again. Right. So the idea of combating cheatgrass in those landscapes is wholly different from, say, a place like, you know, the Bear River Valley in Utah or the valleys of southwest Montana in the High Divide, where a lot of native, diverse, functioning habitats, they're, they're plentiful. And so we are trying to approach this issue of, like, where and how and why do you spend resources and for what outcome? which has a lot of consequences, right? 150 million acres is an enormous landscape. There are not a lot of people here. There's not an endless amount of money. We don't get the same sort of investment that forests get, but the Everglades gets, you know, like we need to spend wisely the investments we have from state and federal governments. And so TNC is both involved in that space of like how, where, what do we do? And then also providing like increased tools and resources so that when we are going to fight cheatgrass, when we are going to resist it, we do so effectively. And that involves especially how do we use native seeds and how do we enhance their abilities to perform as best they can? Because same story is true as we talked about sagebrush, native bunch grasses, which are foundational to good ecosystem function, they're slow, they take the time, their seeds yeah. are weak. And so we're looking at ways that we can enhance the germination and establishment of those plants using kind of some of the same seed technologies that agriculture uses to delay germination or protect against herbicides or basically other tricks through coatings or other treatments so that the seeds have a better leg up on competition or environmental conditions than untreated seeds. And then answering questions of, are they the right seeds? Are they genetically diverse? Do we have enough of them? Are they getting used in the right place? And even looking really closely at like, how do we use herbicides? Because herbicides are one of the few affordable, effective, large-scale tools we have to control annuals. And so bring all those tools together, the seeds, the seed technologies, herbicides in the right places so that we are fighting cheatgrass where we can win and we're accepting a novel future where we can't. Yeah, and have, is there a place where you have tried that methodology and been and seen some success? It's coming together. It's emerging. Yeah. you know, okay. we and this is not just TNC, right? Like this no, is no, yeah. supporting partners and states. The mantra we're trying to grow around, uh, there's a framework out there called defend the core, grow the core, as in pick your best, most intact landscapes and start there. In cores, again, like Southwest Montana and Southeast Oregon, parts of Wyoming, there are the emerging outcomes of like smart use of seeds, smart use of herbicide, broad buy-in among landowners and land managers. And I personally think we're just at a point where we've got to take the, the wins, the lessons learned, and just replicate the heck out of them. What's going well in one geography gets stolen by another because you can't just treat your weeds, right? You also need to fix your streams. You also need to keep track of woodland expansion. You also need to manage your grazing better. Different landscapes are thinking about different pieces of the puzzle, and we got to just start bringing it all together, doing it all in the right places, paying for it. Oh, and putting people to work, which is like a whole other aspect of TNC's emphasis. But like restoration economy, this work means jobs. We need to have the workforce and the skill set to be able to do these kinds of management techniques on a big scale. That's great. Are you working with ranchers and trying to try to get them to use better practices that are a little more favorable to keep the, the sagebrush intact? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a big part of it is to learn from ranchers and ranching communities and, and have a deep understanding of what is the reality, you know, what can and can't you do with current technology and, and money? Right. Because uh, there's ideas out there. We have some of our own. You know, they're impossible. You'll never, it's, it's too niche. It's too, I like to say sometimes Noah's Ark, you know, putting two of two in there, on the boat. Yeah. Nope, not practical. And so it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of learning. It's a lot of sharing. Uh, we ourselves own, as an organization, multiple large working ranches. And one of the big realities in this system is that this is a public lands landscape. The Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, they own the vast majority of sagebrush sea acres. I shouldn't say own, they manage for the public, those acres. And so to work with private landowners who have livestock grazing operations, you also need to work with the agencies that then give them permits to graze on public lands. And that brings in the whole kit and caboodle of regulation and the lack of flexibility and the lack of accountability. And so it's it's as much of a social conundrum as it is a technological one because it needs to work for people and you can't go too crazy because you have to show that it works. There's rightful criticism that grazing causes problems. Absolutely it does when done improperly. And so we need to like turn a very large ship. We need to do so rather quickly, but we can't do it so carelessly that we just end up with a different set of bad outcomes. And I noticed TNCs experimenting with wildflowers to try and uh, improve performance in, in the restoration process. How does that work? A good kind of way of thinking about the ecology of much of the system is there's there's three key groups of plants. There's sagebrush. There are bunch grasses, which are these large, deep-rooted, long-lived grasses that actually are the most important group to the landscape. They are what keeps soil in place and resists weeds and everything else. And then there is, you know, the color, and that is forbs, as we call them, but wildflowers, yeah. lupin, and different asters, and buckwheats, and a whole diverse array of perennial wildflowers. And it's really on their backs, really on their flowers, that we get much of the diversity in the system. That's the pollinators. That's a lot of bird communities, including sagegrass, that then eat the pollinators and other insects. If we don't have a diverse wildflower assemblage, we really don't have a diverse landscape. And yet it needs to be built on top of intact bunch grasses. It needs to be built with intact sagebrush stands. And so it's a little bit of all of them. And we're just trying to think, what is our best role to enhance the gaps or needs in each group? Like sagebrush is a slow, weak seed. How can we speed it up so that it does its job quicker? Um, Bunch grasses are necessary in all cases. So how do we make sure we have enough of them and that they work almost every time we use them in seeds? And then wildflowers, it's a trade-off of like, if you get too diverse, you only have a couple of seeds of each species. They each have a unique germination, you know, trait that has evolved with them. You have to understand that. How do you grow them in an agricultural setting to have enough seed to then use in a restoration setting? (laughs) So the more seeds you get in a wildflower setting, actually, the more encumbered you can be. And there's a a trade-off there. And that's part of what we're trying to figure out is what are the most important wildflower species? How do we grow them? And then how do we amplify their use while steadily building, you know, the portfolio, but we can't go everywhere all the time. Yeah, I get that. Well, what, what are one of the restoration projects that you'd like to talk about? Well, really the thing that excites me most is like how we layer these ideas together. And, you know, I neglected to mention a moment ago when we talked about like ranching and I mentioned TNC owns ranches, one of them being in, Southern Utah at right. the Dugout Ranch, South yeah. Moab, and the Canyonlands Research Center is based there. 
And that's just like one example of a landscape where we are trying to see how does restoration of uplands, these plant communities, how does it layer into restorations of wetlands and streams, which are in a, in a desert like much of the sagebrush sea in the Colorado Plateau, water is everything. Healthy, diverse riparian areas give you more water, give you more forage. So layer the, the upland restoration and the riparian restoration and the livestock management all together because they're just parts of the same puzzle. And try to show how these like uh, different solutions add up to more than the sum of their parts. And we've got a number of projects now going that are trying to integrate these learning spaces between uplands, riparian, and grazing. And to me, that's the most exciting part because that just shows how we probably can't have it all, right? But we can get closer to having it all if we think of these solutions working together. We think about them in a setting where people are at the center of the solution, working the land, restoring the land. There's not a solution without people in this space. And I think all of these ideas of more native seed, more healthy streams, uh, more flexible, accountable livestock grazing, they're all based around having a future for the communities of people who live in these landscapes. The joy of my job is I get to connect our colleagues there at Dugout to colleagues who are up in the lander front in Wyoming and colleagues yeah. who are in Southeast Oregon and the desert basins there and Southwest Montana and sort of get to on the internal side, just pull all of our teams together and go like, you're, you're doing so much of the same work. It, it's a fun place to get to operate. TNC's strength is the fact that we have an evidence base that we produce. We manage lands, we do restoration. So we can, like you said, we can point to the hard fought lessons learned. That's the strength of this organization. And the more we take advantage of those resources, those ranches, the better. Why do we care so much about restoring the sagebrush sea? I mean, it's a big, important question. There are endless issues that we need to fix in this world, in this country, in the West. Why this one, not any other? I think it's healthy for us to ask that question, but I think there are some really relevant answers. One of it being, it's an enormous landscape, right? Yeah. This is this spans the West. If we subtracted that from our portfolio, we are losing the identity of Nevada, of Wyoming, of Montana. People live in those states, they work in those states, they get their livelihood from those states. There's no viable future where we can just not manage a biome this large. And there's reason to believe that we can turn the tide of the worst outcomes. You know, we can defend the core if we get smart and if we work together and if the dollars go for the right tools in the right places. And I think that can be really inspiring. And we'll avoid some of the worst outcomes of, you know, when the sagebrush sea burns, it's Boise and it's Salt Lake City and it's Reno that chokes on the smoke. And when the water dries up in the streams, it's the downstream users who no longer have an asset for farming or tap water. And so there's not a way that we can get a, get away from the connectedness of the range with the rest of both urban and rural Western America. Yeah, there's an inherent value to trying to conserve biodiversity this diverse and this large with lessons to be learned and shared with other systems, right? We're not the only system that is dealing with prioritization and scarcity of resources in an ever-changing, ever more unpredictable, you know, future climate. And so what we can learn in this system is hopefully valuable to other systems and vice versa. And we're going to be in a different kind of world a hundred years from now. And it's going to be one where people have learned to live and manage with uncertainty. And this is a great laboratory for us to figure out those answers. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with Science Moab. And uh, I learned a lot about sagebrush today. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for yeah. having me. This is a lot of fun. 
To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, support us by sponsoring the podcast, writing us into your research grant, or donating at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.